Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian in Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and we dive deep into the metaphor the text gives us the rich, complex, sometimes beautiful, and sometimes painful world of parenting. We encounter here a God who is pouring out the biggest of feelings, a mixture of love and jealousy and nostalgia and compassion and suffering that can seem impossible to hold together. Feelings that are not unfamiliar to the experience of many parents, I might add. And though God plainly states at the end of our reading that there is a difference between God's self and humans, we found here a beautiful and honest depiction of some of the most beloved and fraught relationships in the human realm, and maybe even a model for moving through them. Thanks for being with us. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Amy. It's good to see you. I almost said good morning, Bobby, but then I'm like, oh, are we allowed to acknowledge that this recording Bible worm exists outside outside of time and space. (laughs) (laughs) It is morning when we are recording this. We realized a while ago that when we record late in the afternoon, I mean, like we can, but I don't know. We're grumpy and distracted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes, I I mean, I can't promise I'm not grumpy and distracted. Well, in the morning, we're grumpy and sleepy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bobby, what's new? Well, it's such a funny, we were just talking before we turned on the recording devices that it's so funny to talk about what's happening in our lives when we're recording ahead of time, like outside of time and space. And so you can't really talk about what's happening in the world. I know. In the first year that we recorded, we really like, we would record like two days before we posted it. We would record on Friday and and then it would come out on Sunday. It would come out on Sunday. So we really could talk about things that were sort of in in current events. And so it's a little it's a little funny not to, but I'm just going to, I'm going to break the wall for just a minute and say, war has just broken out in Israel. Yeah. It is, it is, I'm in a really pain, I'm in, I'm in pain. I'm in pain. I'm not in the kind of pain that the people in Israel and the Palestinian people are in, but I am (laughs) grumpy and distracted. Yeah. 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 We're recording this on October 9th in the morning. And so the war started on was it on Friday night, Saturday morning? Just a couple of days ago. I heard about it Saturday morning. Yes. And so then and this text in Hosea is, I mean, it's just, it's an interesting text to read also in that context. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not cheerful banter, but maybe Hosea can solve our problems. Hosea is a cheerful prophet, right? One of the like, you know, entertaining prophets. Wait, are you being, I can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really. You have I mean, a really there? good deadpan. I'd never noticed that. But you were like, I was like, I don't know. I, I don't know. She, what, what she's saying sounds ridiculous, her? but her face looks totally straight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, are, are there entertaining, pro- I guess Joan is a little bit of an entertaining. Joan is entertaining. Prophet. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the written, like the 
prophets that are written about, like Elijah and Elisha, those guys are pretty entertaining sometimes. Yeah, sometimes they are. But, but there's the no like that happy are... prophets that are just like, do, yeah. do, do, I'm a prophet. Da, 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 da. Yeah, they have, they have a rough job. They do. So we're reading today from Hosea chapter 11, just the first nine verses. It's a big transition from where we've been. Yeah. How would you want to orient us? Where are we in the canon? Where are we in history? What do we need to know to start reading? It's so interesting. When we when we got off the podcast last week and we announced what we were doing, I was like, we're moving to a whole new section of the canon and the prophets. And you're like, no, we're not. We've been in the prophets for like three weeks or whatever. Um <laughs> So it's it's just, in, I mean, Christians organize our canon in four parts, one of which is the historical books, which is where we've been. And then we move to the writing prophets. In the Jewish canon, there's there's not those. There's the Torah, then there's the prophets, and then the writings. Mm-hmm. And so in, in your tradition, we're not, we haven't moved really in the canon that much. In my tradition, we have. In terms of history, though, we're actually not, I mean, so the last time that we talked, we were talking about the problems in the Northern Kingdom. Mm-hmm. We were talking about Ahab and Elijah and the sort of problem of syncretism or the worship of other deities that seems to have been an issue, particularly in the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And Hosea kind of picks up there. We're in the Northern Kingdom and we're mm-hmm. in Israel. There's only two prophets in the canon of the Hebrew Bible that are prophets to the Northern Kingdom, at least writing prophets. Those are Hosea who we're reading today and then Amos. Hosea is writing in the latter part of the eighth century. I think he's normally dated sometime around like 730 or something like that. The Northern Kingdom is going to be destroyed by the Assyrians about a decade later. That's normally dated to 722. And so Hosea is writing at the very end of the Northern Kingdom. And Mm -hmm. he can kind of see that that may be where they're headed, I think. And he's trying to warn people about, look, this thing has gone awry and there are dangers in the world that might be the undoing of the kingdom. And Hosea is writing in that context in the Northern Kingdom. So... In a sense, I mean, we've moved on from the like narratives. We're going to spend a few weeks in the poetry of prophets. But it's all kind of a part of the same whole in terms of the narrative structure where we've been. Yeah. What else would you yeah. want to say about Hosea? I think it's so interesting to to be in, yes, in the same sort of historical context. But this is coming at it from such a different even just a different like genre of language. The yeah. fact, you know, you just said like we're in the poetry of the prophets now. Yeah. And so we're 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 in the realm of of the the prophets. And yes, even though the the Jewish canon calls all a much larger swath of the text prophets, there is a recognition that there are some writings that are from prophets and there are some writings that are kind of a historical-ish right. narrative. But now we're we're switching to like a really different perspective yeah. on what's happening and coming at it through the lens of poetry. For me, it's always such a, it's a tough transition yes. because I'm used to, I'm used to the plot, you know, right. <laughs> I'm used to a lot of detail and prose and trying to picture scenes unfolding and saying yeah. what's happening. And, and we're moving now into this world of metaphor and mm-hmm. 
many fewer words and maybe more emotionally loaded ones. And so trying to slow ourselves down enough to dig into what, what Jose is getting at. And it's tempting to just read it quickly because, I don't know, we like to do things quickly. Right. But we're going to try not to do that. What you were saying there about poetry and the nature of prophecy, that's important in the, you know, God has sort of been a character in the biblical text up until now, as we've been reading, mm-hmm. like, you know, the they, people are writing about what God is doing and how God is acting. In the prophets, what we have are speakers who in various ways claim to actually have access to what God is thinking and feeling. And the job of the prophet is to give articulation to that. The word is understood to, to be God's word in some sense. So just the way that Hosea itself frames this is that Hosea is hearing, I guess. Uh, Sometimes prophets have auditory connection to God. They hear what God says. Sometimes they have visionary connection to God. So you'll see this is the thing that the prophet saw. But here we just get the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. So I sort of imagine Hosea as just having this sort of I don't know. I don't, how do you think about that? Like he experiences God, feels God's word welling up in him or hears God like whispering. Like, how do you think about that mm. mode of prophecy? I mean, I think my, my, my general reading of the biblical text when it, when it's describing these experiences with God is if that language is just so inadequate to describe how you come to know something that that you just know in your bones is God. And my only frame of reference is my own experiences, which are so limited and are nothing like Hosea's. (laughs) So I don't, I don't know if he actually heard it or if he just came to know it Mm -hmm. so clear. I I mean, I, I don't know what his embodied experience of this would have been. I was thinking about a few weeks ago when we were talking about, what were we even talking about? Oh, we were talking in the Ten Commandments about that the commandment, uh, I am the Lord your God. Mm. And you were talking about that and about Holocaust theology when you were in college and how mm. you could feel it in your bones. Yeah. And, you know, Jeremiah uses that language of a fire in his bones. And I kind of, I like that way of thinking about prophecy as it's just something that resonates so deep in these prophets, uh, especially a prophet like Hosea, who says the word that came, that yeah. that's just like, it, it's, you just feel it in, in your essence and then, yeah. you, and then you speak it. Yeah. It's not, I don't think of it as like an intellectual thing that like goes through our cognition, mm-hmm. but that makes it hard to talk about. <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah. Now we're going to talk about it for an hour. Now we're going to yeah. talk about it. We're going to just put it right through our cognition. Okay. Yeah. Alrighty, well, let's read some uh, prophetic poetry. Let's do it. Shall we? Okay. So the reading is Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and I am reading from the NJPS. I fell in love with Israel when he was still a child, and I have called him my son ever since Egypt. Thus were they called, but they went their own way. They sacrificed to Baalim and offer to carved images. Okay, already, Bobby, I need to stop and ask you some questions about this. Okay, yes. 
I am so struck by, I fell in love with Israel when he was still a child. Mm-hmm. But it's not, I formed Israel. Yeah. Or, I mean, Israel already existed. Yeah. But was young. Yeah. I mean, I just have a lot of questions about this, generally speaking. But, okay, so let's start with this. We'll start with the ever since Egypt. Egypt. But, like, there were there were things before Egypt. Like, we... <laughs> what, what about Genesis? What about right. choosing Abraham? What about... You know, the the people Israel coming out of this this family, this lineage that God has been in relationship with, that's not the story that's being told here. It's not. Yeah. So it seems like the originary event for from Hosea's perspective is the exodus from Egypt. Yeah. Which you, as I recall, I think last year talked about that as a like a birthing event, like the coming out of yeah. the Red Sea, and that's the like that's the origin of the people. And so I think Hosea has a similar idea here, not necessarily to say that that whole Genesis story is irrelevant, but there is something about that Egypt experience that is the like the real beginning sort of a shift of the relationship between God and Israel. Yeah. I love that your translation, mine says when Israel was a child, I loved him. In the CEB, yours says, mm. I fell in love with Israel while he was still a child or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. With the language of adoption is so clear there in your yeah. translation. Here it sounds like maybe Israel always was God's child or something like that. Yours very clearly gets that idea of this is a child that had its own being and that God found that child and fell in love. And I just think that's such a beautiful, I just think that's such a beautiful image. And the idea of like a adoption as like a falling in love and like a choosing to commit oneself to another being. There's just so much in there, both about like what adoption is, but also about what God's relationship to Israel is. This chosen love that sounds like God almost couldn't help it, you know, just discovered this child and I fell in love with you. I, I love that language. Yeah. No, I love that too. And I wonder, you know, this emphasis on on youth. Yeah. Like, I, I love I love pulling out the fact that this is clearly sort of an adoption. Yeah. But what what is the significance of of this happening when Israel was still young? I mean, you like you get it in the part that you just read in verse two, like. The more I called to them, the more they went away from me. Like, mm. I mean, it's just like those of us who are parents or, I mean, those even those of us who have been teenagers, you know, like that is such a familiar idea of the like, there's the love that is there, but also the young, the young child or the youth that's trying to differentiate and like mm. have its own existence. And, you know, that's what you are kind of getting here is. God's trying to love Israel. Israel keeps pushing back and going in search of its own way, I guess, and discovering yeah. among the Baalim, the gods of the land, that there is another, here's another option. Yeah. What do you think about that? You know, that's, I love that you pulled out the sort of teenager part of that, Bobby, because I first, like, my first thought was, 
you know, I fell in love with Israel when he was still a child. So I was like, okay, a child is vulnerable and impressionable and needs protection and guidance. Like I was picturing a younger child. Mm -hmm. But you're exactly right. Like just in the next verse, it never really articulates in this particular section of text that like idyllic time when this child Israel was so grateful for your guidance and couldn't wait to do everything that you <laughs> yeah. suggested for it. Like there was no, it does, there isn't one here. Like it, it seems to go immediately into this. They were called, but they went their own way. Like yeah. is, the Israel being depicted here never, it, it almost feels like, I mean, this seems like an extreme thing to say, but it almost feels like a, a love that was not quite reciprocal. Yeah. Like, or at least not in its, uh, what's the word I want to use? Like not in its <laughs> uniquity, not not in like maybe Israel loved God, but not not in a way that meant they couldn't also do all this other yeah. stuff and have relationships, you know, with Baalim and carved images. And, and that was not what God had in mind. Yeah, I think that's right. The way that I have been thinking about this text is that this is God talking about Israel in the time that Israel is sort of teenager, young adult, but remembering the time earlier, mm-hmm. which I, you know, my mm-hmm. children are not there yet, but I think this is a common experience of parents. You, you might reflect on it. Like mm-hmm. here's your, you know, your kids who are in the process of becoming adults and it's like, there's a, it's complicated. And you remember this time a long time ago when they really were, you know, like my daughter said to me the other day, you're just the best dad in the whole world. And I'm like, yes, remember that one, <laughs> yes, Williamson. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be a time when that is not what is being said to you. And so I, re- I think this is God remembering like, oh, yeah, there was a time. But, but they don't remember it. And, but I remember it. And so there's this sort of wistfulness in this text. Like my, my teenage Israel is irritating me. Remember, remember when I fell in love back when they were little. I think I think that's how mm, I right. I okay, frame so I hear text. you saying that it's like it's implied that part of it, like it doesn't go into here because the point of this section is not about those early days, right. but about the troubled days they're in. Right, but, but we're about to get more about that here in just a minute. Yeah. Okay. Okay. One other thing I want to note about this parent-child metaphor is that it's it's common biblically, it's common in the ancient Near East more broadly. It, it sometimes for me is gets to a little bit of a, a troubling <laughs> a troubling place, but I think it's worth just sort of keeping in mind why why this metaphor feels so apt mm. to to these writers. Mm-hmm. There's something about like the understanding of obligations in this relationship that is different than saying like God is your teacher. Yeah. That's not what it's saying. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's yeah, some kind there's obligation and there's emotion and there's power differential. Yeah. Yeah. There is all of that. And you know, Hosea is probably most famous for a different metaphor mm-hmm. that Hosea uses in Hosea yeah. chapters one to three. As you know, in that text, it's a husband and wife metaphor in which God is the husband and Israel is the wife. And it does not go well 
Mm-hmm. It is, I fell in love with you and you fell in love with me. And then you started wandering away from me. And I was deeply hurt and rejected you. And there's just a lot of pain. And it's it's a really, really difficult metaphor to read. Yes. And here we've shifted to a parent metaphor. And the relationships are different. Like with a, with a marriage partner, it's I committed to you and you committed to me. And so we both, there's, I don't know, the expectations are different. Mm-hmm. You don't meet your spouse until you're a full grown adult and they are too. And so it's like, you don't have those like from the very earliest days. And so the relationship I think has more potential to get messed up and separated and like, you know, divorce is, is a possibility, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. what happens in Hosea one to three. With the child, it's a little, it just feels different. Like, and those ways that you're talking about power differential and like the degree of understanding and how much choice there was in the relationship, the parent made the choice. The kid probably didn't have very much choice. And so Mm -hmm. there's an obligation from the parent to the child that is different than the obligation the child has to the parent. And so for me, the shift from a marriage metaphor to a parent metaphor changes a lot of the conversation. It's a still a tough metaphor with a lot to work through, yeah. but it's a, it's a important one, a different one than Hosea has been trying on earlier in this book. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. For sure. All right. Shall we go on? Is there anything else you want to add about just these first couple verses? I think the only other thing that I would say there is in verse two, the, thing that God seems to be upset with Israel about is sacrificing to the Baalim or to the Baals, burning incense to idols. And so they they are engaged in the worship, the veneration of gods other than the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so th- this just seems like it's hurtful, right? It's like when your kids want to hang out with their with their friend's parents instead of you. Or like, mm-hmm. you know, I wish so-and-so was my dad instead of you. Yeah. And so there's this religious side to it, like who are they worshiping? But there is also the personal, like, I mean, God has already said way back in the Ten Commandments, I'm a jealous God, so don't don't worship other gods. And so this is like getting right at the like core emotion, emotional trait of God, you know, that yeah. God sometimes uh, is, is wounded and maybe responds sort of out of that wounding sometimes. Uh, to the worship of other of other deities. Yeah. I think one, I just, we're not going to be able to solve this, but one question that I just want to put out there about this parent-child metaphor that I struggle with a little bit is, you know, in, in a human life, the relationships between parents and children should change over time. Yes. And that change might be painful. Yeah. But it is the, I would say, the natural order of things yes. that our children become more and more independent from us. Yes. And I don't know that the biblical text has that in mind as the natural order of things. Yeah. You know, in any case, you wouldn't want your, you know, you wouldn't want them to be sacrificing. (laughs) But that's not the kind of independence you'd be going for anyway. But it's just a question I have about about what they're going for in the use of this metaphor. And I don't know that they're going for that piece of it. Well, I think that's worth hanging on to, Amy. I don't quite know what to do with it, but I think you're onto something. You talk a lot on the podcast, or at least from time to time, about how you read the text as like God figuring out how to be a God in relationship with humans. 
Yeah. And that's part of what being a parent is too, is like figuring out how to be a parent of an adult child rather than of an infant child. Yeah. There's a sort of wistfulness about, I love being the parent of an infant. Being a parent of like a grown human is Mm -hmm. tough in a different way. And there's like a transition that has to happen in order for that adult relationship to work. So, I I mean, I think it's possible to read this as God is experiencing exactly those same kinds of growing pains where God remembers what it was like back in the day, but -hmm. is having to figure out like, how do we have a, how do we have a relationship in which Israel is not literally infantilized, but actually gets to be a, an entity that has its own adult thoughts and feelings. Oh, that's so, okay. I have to say one more thing about that. And then, and then I promise we'll move on, but I, you know, I have, I have teenagers and I have a lot of friends that have teenagers. And one of the ways that my parent friends and I look out for each other is when our kids are going through whatever they're going through that makes them mean to us. They're mean to us sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and I also believe that can, can be in moderation, the natural order of things. And you have to make sure, like when, you ha- when you're the parent of an infant, it's easy to construct a world in which it is only you and this infant. Yes. And as the kids get older, when they go through these difficult phases, it's really important that that's not your whole world. Like you have to have other people who are not being a jerk to you, right. you know? And this is set up from the beginning as sort of this, there is this just one-to-one relationship mm. with God and Israel. And if, I mean, this is such a stupid way to put it in some ways, but but if it is the case that Israel is basically just being mean to God and rebelling right. and going off and doing all this stuff, like that's a really vulnerable position to be in as a parent. I love you that. Dedicated your whole self to this mm-hmm. mean little creature living in your house. Yeah. <laughs> God needs her mom friends. God needs some mom friends. And does not have them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, I say that a little bit flip, but I think that's actually, like, that's a really interesting insight. God has this one relationship that is the primary relationship. Yeah. And that's a lot of weight. It's a lot of weight to put on it. Yeah. Hello, fellow Bible worms. My name is Amy Marie Epp. I'm a pastor at Seattle Mennonite Church in Seattle, Washington. I support Bible worm at the early worm level. $8 a month, and I consider that professional budget dollars very well spent. What I especially love about being a patron at this level is having access to those podcast episodes a week early, since I'm often working that far ahead on sermons or on worship prep. Also, by the way, I love the sticker, which I put on my water bottle immediately. Amy and Bobby's insight and wisdom have become an invaluable resource for me. I look forward every week to hearing them chew through that biblical text together with curiosity and with it feels like I'm a part of the conversation. That's why I wanted to support them in making Bible Worm possible. It still feels like a gift each week to have that Patreon episode land in my inbox. I hope all of you who are listening will also consider becoming patrons. And now, back to this week's episode. All right, let's pick up, shall we? Yes, let's do. All right, so I am in verse 3. I have pampered Ephraim, taking them in my arms, but they have ignored my healing care. I drew them with human ties, with cords of love, 
but I seemed to them as one who imposed a yoke on their jaws, though I was offering them food. Maybe the end of that is so different. And like, <laughs> here's the CEB, the very last half of verse four. Mm. I treated them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. Oh, that's really different. Very different. The Hebrew is huh. is complicated there. And there is an argument about whether the word yoke or the word like the word for suckling mm. and the word for mm. yoke are very similar. And oh so there's gosh. an argument here about whether which one that is. But it changes so much. It like when you turn to yokes, so I was like, oh no, like let's th- I want to stay with the cute baby imagery for just a minute. <laughs> a minute more. Yeah. I mean, maybe we should try to think of okay, let's 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 read it through with both of those. Yeah. So you have been reading from this text that uses a uses the image there of like lifting a baby to your cheek yeah. and this sort of like nursing yeah. suckling image. So where does where does that take you in these two verses? What sort of yeah. I don't know, what image or sense do you have? What kind of relationship is God trying to have? The other thing that is quite different in the CEB, which I also really like in the CEB, is the very beginning of verse three, where God says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Mm. And so in the, in the CEB, like the image for these two verses is very much like God as the parent. I've been, we've been using parent language, which I think is right here. It's, it's not clear whether we're talking about a mother or a father or mm-hmm. what we're talking about. But this is clearly a parent image. So the parent is like doing that thing, you know, where your kid is just like, they're like 11 or 12 months old and they, they know how to pull up, but they can't do the, the walk yet. And so you're holding their arms up over their head and you're helping them take their steps and you're holding them in their arms. You're feeding them. You're lifting them up to your cheek and like, you know, doing a little coochie, coochie, coo. Like that's God's relationship to Israel. The way that I read this is we're still like Israel as a teenager who is being difficult, but now God is remembering that, the, like the mm-hmm. things of the past. Mm-hmm. Like I have this little video that I don't know how my wife got it, but it was the day my daughter learned to walk. And somehow my wife, got a video like of the very first steps my daughter took. And then she, she, my daughter walked to me and I picked her up and I was like, yeah. And then she started screaming like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we just had this big like joy fest. It was on a Thanksgiving morning a few years ago. And it was just like, I will always remember that. I will never, ever forget that moment and what joy that was. And that that's how I view this as like, it was God, like the first time Israel walked, remembering what that was like and just like feeling so much joy and tearfulness and like, oh, we, it was, we were so like, that moment was just pure bliss. And thinking all of that in the context of Israel is going through some growth pains and our relationship is difficult right now. Yeah. And so this like present and past and the moving back and forth and God's sort of emotional self between those. That's how I read this. I see why when we were reading the first two verses, you're like, oh, we're going to get into the relationship, the early relationship. But <laughs> yeah. my translation is is not really about the yeah, early yeah. relationship as much. So 
talk to me about what reading it in the NJPS translation, which is takes a different kind of tack on it. Yeah, I mean, it certainly does. It it acknowledges briefly <laughs> that sort of time when you could just pour all the love and care into the into the child, and they would happily receive it and reflect it right back to you. Mm-hmm. But then it moves quickly to the more troubled time. Mm-hmm. And so, does your translation have something like "I drew them with human ties, with cords of love"? It's I led them with bands of human kindness, with cords mm-hmm. of love. It's such an interesting and and beautiful image. And then if if you follow the JPS translation and then it, it twists, like I see I seem to them as one who imposed a yoke on their jaws. Mm-hmm. Like these these cords that had been sort of pulling them close or maybe helping them, mm-hmm. you know, walk along or like drawing connection, all of a sudden become this constraint this yeah. like imprisonment yeah i mean a yoke on your jaw like it's it it's i don't even know what exactly that would be but it's somehow is it's like make it they're experiencing it as it's yeah. making them impossible it's making it impossible for them to even eat for them to be in the world and god is saying but i was giving you food like i was nurturing you yeah but the people are experiencing it as like this sort of imprisonment kind of claustrophobic yeah. uh, nurturing, which mm-hmm. again, just feels very, it's much more like parenting teenagers. Yeah. You know? And I really like, like the, what you're making me think is that the CEB has translated this from God's perspective. This is what I, this is what I thought I was doing. And the NJPS has, read it all like mm. almost from Israel's perspective. This is what it felt like to us. And if you read those two together, it captures both sides of that. Yeah. I was leading you with bands of kindness, but we felt like you were yanking us by a, like by a right. yoke. Right. And that like that tension is right there in the middle of those two translations. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, it's just even moving beyond the metaphor of parenting, this, question or this issue is so live to me in our own day where it it feels like this, you know, unending choice and freedom from everything is our goal, you know, yeah. is is held up as an ideal in yeah. our society broadly speaking. And then there's the question of does that does that really make people happy? Yeah. Or or not, you know, mm-hmm. is happiness the goal? Is is it better to be committed to some, you know, like it's it, it's a big philosophical question that's yeah. being thrown around a lot in our, even in, in just pop culture now. But yeah, even if you think about the relationship from the parent side towards children, you know, they've done all these studies of parents that's, you know, the question is like, does parenting make you happy? Mm. I mean, the answer is like, it kind of depends what you mean by happy. <laughs> but like, yeah. In the day-to-day, not not necessarily. Like you're tired and you yeah. <laughs> you don't you can't take care of your body as well and you can't pursue the things that are fun and interesting and you can't, you know, in the same way that you can when you don't have children who are dependent on you. And also it brings you these tremendously meaningful moments and opportunities for enormous happiness, like yeah. what you described when your daughter first walked. And so it's just it's just more complicated. But I think I think the tension is just right there in these mm-hmm. two verses. Yeah. 
I think that's exactly right. And then to read that back into God's experience is so interesting to me. God adopted this child expecting to be happy. But it's not all happy. Yeah. And if you imagine God adopting this child when they're in Egypt, like you're adopting a child who really needs immediate help and is suffering. And you have the capacity to alleviate that immediate suffering. Yes. You know, that's, it's a, I can't imagine what that feeling is like. Yeah. And then when it gets complicated, it's like, wait a (laughs) minute. Don't you remember what I did (laughs) for you? Wait a minute. Don't you remember what I did for you? But, but that's, I don't know. That's a dangerous way to think about parenting at least. Yeah. All right, should we go on? I think we should. Or do you want to say more about this? Okay. So I'm picking up in verse five. No, they return to the land of Egypt and Assyria is their king. Because they refuse to repent, a sword shall descend upon their towns and consume their limbs and devour them because of their designs. For my people persists in its defection from me. When it is summoned upward, it does not rise at all. Mm. It is just so powerful to me, Bobby, that this whole section just begins. And in in my translation, there's a line that has only one word. No. (laughs) Yeah. And I almost don't know whether to read that as, as God saying, we're not doing this. I am not doing this. I'm out. Or is there another way to read that? Is there a different? Maybe that's the way to read that. Amy, that's the way that I read it too. My translation is a little bit softer. That Like the no is not there, but the now you're going to return to Egypt and Assyria is going to be your king because you refuse to turn to me. Yeah. There is, a, there is an I'm done with this sense about it for yeah. sure. A lot of people think that the background of this text might be Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 and following, which is the rule about what to do with a rebellious child. If you have Mm. a stubborn or rebellious child and they refuse their father or mother, it says, if you discipline them and they won't listen, then you should bring the child before the elders of the city gate. Tell the elders, our son is stubborn, won't listen to us, and then the people will stone the child to death. And so a lot of people think that this is like God is sort of processing this as the parent. My child is rebellious. My child will not listen to me. My child is, even though I'm being so kind, my child receives that as a yoke. And so this is over. And now I I am within my rights to enact the punishment of a rebellious child, which here is not stoning, but it Mm -hmm. is giving them over to... Assyria and to Egypt so that they can be, so that Assyria and Egypt can do with them what they will. So that's how I, I I'm kind of persuaded by that. And yeah. so then what we, then what we're reading is God is, God is fed up. God is done. And God is within God's rights to, to be, to be done. I do wonder, I hear what you're saying. And I think that's a, a perfectly valid reading and I also wonder if there's a way to read this that's, I mean, you could read that as God is forcing them to go back 
because they're not behaving. But I wonder if you could also read it almost as they're they're choosing through through the choices they're making. Yeah. They are essentially returning to this pre God's mm-hmm. child state where they're going back to metaphorical Egypt. Like they yeah. would rather they'd rather starve than eat what you made them for dinner, you know. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't know if I'm just trying to soften a little bit because it's so like disturbing to me and so sort of abusive sounding that like, I don't like what my child's doing. And so I'm going to physically attack them. (laughs) Yeah. Which that is certainly a disturbing image. And I don't know if I'm just trying to, to, to get out of it by imagining that that it's more like God is withdrawing and is not going to keep fighting this fight and that that these teenage Israel folks seem so determined to go back to their previous way of being in their proverbial Egypt that that God's like, fine. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, we're going to see in a couple of weeks in the Isaiah passage about God removing the hedge and allowing the wild animals to run over, to overrun yeah. Israel. Is that kind of what you're saying? Like, God is going to just like hands off and y'all do what you do. Like natural consequences. Yeah. Like, (laughs) which is also honestly a big part of parenting teenagers. No, I think that's a good, I think that's a fine reading. And I I think I actually probably prefer that. I like the background of Deuteronomy 21 as the parent is within their rights at this point to do whatever they need to do. Yeah. And then maybe softening that by saying what God is going to do is hands off. Like y'all are on your own. Yeah. The end of the CEB, they will cry out to the most high. He will not raise them up is in mm. at the end of verse seven. Yours read a little it's differently. Really you, different from mine. Yeah. yeah. My verse seven is for my people persists in its defection from me. When it is summoned upward, it does not rise at all. Oh, interesting. So the people but then there's a note that says rising. meaning of Hebrew uncertain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no kidding. This is, yeah, this all, CEB also says meaning of Hebrew uncertain. And what, they, what the CEB has is the cry is rising up, but God's not going to respond to the cry. Mm. I go back and mm. forth about like. That's harsher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Like if you imagine that you had a saber-toothed tiger in your backyard and like the difference between throwing your kid out in the backyard and letting the saber-toothed tiger eat it. I don't know why I'm on saber-toothed tigers, but that's where I am. Uh Or like your kid's like, I'm going to go out in the backyard. And you're like, fine. And then your kid goes out in the backyard and gets eaten by a saber-toothed tiger Mm -hmm. and cries out like, dad, save me. And you're like, sorry, kid. (laughs) Like, that's your own fault. Like to me, those are functionally not that different. And so, like, no matter how you read this, like, God is like, fine, you can go out in the backyard if you want. Or, like, I'm going to throw you to that tiger out there. But if you read it as when it is summoned upward, it does not rise at all. I could almost imagine a a situation where you would be saying, like, no, you are better than this. Don't go outside and dance with a saber-toothed tiger. But they won't respond to that. Yeah. So then at a certain point, you recognize that. You, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. Don't dance with a tiger, Bobby. <laughs> yeah. I think of my I kid. Know. I mean, I don't know. My kids are young and cute. But if they were going to go out in the backyard with the saber-toothed tiger, like, I would not let them do that. 
There was um, outside my kids when my kids were little, little outside their elementary school for many days in a row, we would walk to school and there was the tail from a stuffed tiger on the ground that my son, who was in kindergarten, thought was real. And he was convinced that every night there were like tiger fights that would happen outside the elementary school. And so he would go every morning to like check out the result of the tiger fight. And he never, it didn't (laughs) really occur to him that it's just the same dumb tail that's on the ground that no one's cleaned it up yet. But then one day it was cleaned up. So we never knew what became of the tiger fights. I don't know. I don't know why I felt compelled to share that story. It was about tigers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about a saber-toothed tiger. So what yeah. can you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tiger fights. So one way or the other, I think what has happened here is God has become fed up with this relationship. Yes. And mm-hmm. is saying, because I am fed up with this relationship either, I'm going to send you back to Egypt and Assyria where you will pay for your in- yes. recalcitrance. Or I'm going to hand off and you I'm make I'm going to withdraw from my protective role yeah, here. You make the alliances you want to make. Fine. Yeah. See how that turns Good out luck. for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Picking up in verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma, render you like Zeboim? I have had a change of heart. All my tenderness is stirred. I will not act on my wrath, will not turn to destroy Ephraim. For I am God, not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in fury. Hmm. Okay, just as sort of a point of information, Adma and Zeboim. What's that? So Adma and Zeboim are cities that are destroyed when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. References in Deuteronomy 29 and, and other places. Okay. So, yeah, so God is saying, I'm not going to destroy you like I destroyed those cities, like Sodom and Gomorrah, basically. Bobby, why does he, why does God change God's mind? Like, what has changed? Nothing has changed. Isn't that amazing? Nothing has changed. Nothing this is how I, changed. this is how I read this text, Amy. It's such a beautiful text to me that God is in the middle of this struggle with recalcitrant teenage Israel mm. who is rebellious. And God says, I, I remember when you were so young and sweet, but now you are not. And so I want to, I want to give you up. Yeah. But then that remembrance of the past just keeps overwhelming God. Oh my goodness. How could I ever do that to you? I remember when I helped you learn how to walk, how could I ever let you be in pain? So then God's compassion overcomes God's anger at the end. Like, I could never allow that to happen to you. I won't come in judgment. And in my reading, this is all the internal process of God. Like Israel has done nothing. It is just God is saying, I'm angry, but my anger is overwhelmed by my compassion and my, my memory of how, how much I love you. And I think for me, this is where the parent metaphor can be really helpful and maybe better than some other metaphors Mm -hmm. because I mean, I do know there are exceptions to any, to any general rule I would put out, but like, I think the general experiences of parenting is that like your child is your child and you love them. Even if they do all kinds of things, you desperately, desperately don't want them to do sometimes teenage rebellion, sometimes much worse than teenage rebellion. Yes. But it is hard. It is, it is, there is just 
something that is so hard to push, I mean, push past, that makes it sound like it's the goal to, you know, to let go of your child. But there's something so strong in, in that commitment that even in the face of all that pain and all those bad decisions and all the things that you hate that they're doing, somehow your, your love is a little bit apart from that. And I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly right. I mean, and that's one of the things I say to my kids all the time is there's nothing you could ever do that would make me not love you, which I think is a thing a lot of parents say to their kids. And it's certainly what God is saying here, I think, is that originary love is the thing that defines the relationship. And even though you're doing all... Like you're violating the commandment about worshiping other gods, which is the one of the 10 things I told you not to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was high on the list. Yeah. Like it was, yes, very high on the list. Uh, now that the time has come, my love is too, is too much. If you read that in light of the Deuteronomy 21 passage, then what's happened is recalcitrant child parent is in the right, has the right to do what they will to punish that child and then decides not to exercise the right. Like, mm-hmm. I love my child too much. That line there that's, uh, I, am, I am a God and not a human being. Mm-hmm. At the end of verse nine, I, to me that's acknowledging that human beings do often have this desire to punish someone who hurts us. God has expressed that desire elsewhere in the biblical text like plenty of times yes, and has gotten talked down by Moses and by others. But here God is saying that like, it is the nature of being a God uh, or at least of being this God Mm -hmm. that compassion for Israel, compassion for my chosen people is the, is the end, the, the final determiner of the relationship. Yeah. I just think that's really, I think that's really lovely. Yeah. Yeah, no matter how how much God may be provoked and feel all the feelings about it. It's not that we're, you know, it's not that humans don't upset yeah. or that Israel in this text does not upset God. But somehow God is able to, you know, hear even the jealous God yeah. is able to move past that jealousy, move through that jealousy to to an enduring compassion that, that kind of outweighs it. Yeah. You know, Amy, this is so different from the sort of philosophical or often Christian doctrinal view of God as like unaffected, impassable, like never, nothing ever gets to God. This is not that at all. This is God feels all the feels. Yeah. And God makes a choice that compassion is going to be the feeling that is the is the one that determines action. And so like, I just, I mean, I really love that image of God who is sort of in the fray with us and and feels what we feel and makes choices about us. And then that also, I think, is an invitation to us to try to reciprocate that with our fellow human beings too. Yeah. To say that when people deserve our judgment or even our like, I'm going to, walk away and let whatever happens to you happen to you, that maybe we would be able to find compassion stirred within us because God has found compassion for us too. 
Bobby, that was, as you were talking, it was making me think about this parenting book that I, I generally did not read many parenting books. Like I kind of gave up on that practice, but there's a, there's this parenting philosophy called positive discipline. I don't know if people still pay much mind to it, but I overall am, am sort of a big fan of it. But when I would read the books, I, I mean, I couldn't, they made me so angry because I felt like what they were asking me as a parent was not to feel anything mm. about my child's behavior. Mm. Like that as a parent, you are not entitled to feel a feeling about it. What hmm. you have to do is orient only towards what you think your child is feeling and help them, which, you know, it's, it's sort of an extreme version of like, be the calm, you know, but, mm-hmm. but it just seemed, it was too much for me. I was like, what? Like, it just made me, it felt so like un- empathetic to what it's actually like even I mean this is a pretty dreamy version of having a young kid here but like if you're underslept and you have a kid in a grocery store throwing a tantrum and screaming in your face and everyone's staring at you and like it's hard and Mm -hmm. so I think I think I actually really appreciate that about this text is that it's a model of like feeling all the feelings and also coming to a place of compassion that is just that is just there that is just underneath everything else and you know just like in the beginning it doesn't i mean in some ways i feel like israel is such a passive partner in this relationship like god falls in love with israel as a small child and then israel behaves as israel behaves and then it you know it says god's tenderness is stirred like it's in this passive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We really are just sort of inside the experience of yes of God in some yes. ways, and and Israel is just being a, a teenager that's yes oblivious to the sufferings of its parent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, there's other places in the biblical text where you know the people actually do go into exile, mm-hmm. and then God sees them in exile and has a similar kind of compassionate response. Yes. We'll see this when we get to the second part of Isaiah in a few weeks. This this is sort of like that, but it but it doesn't require the seeming to me anyway, it doesn't require the actual experience of seeing Israel suffer, but this is God is able to imagine it and choose uh, choose compassion about that, which it takes that whole like compassionate God thing to me to a whole other level. God feels the feelings does not carry out God's anger, mm-hmm. does not have to see what happens to Israel, but can simply find it within God's self to be compassionate. Yeah. Amy, if I were going to throw a wrench into these works, what I would say mm-hmm. is that Hosea wrote this sometime around like 734-ish. It's 12 years later, tribes of Israel are destroyed by the Assyrians, scattered to the wind and never back. So it didn't turn, it, it didn't turn out so great. <laughs> and so I don't like, whenever I read this, I'm like, this is so beautiful. And also that did not work out. Can you help me with that at all? Should we delete that from the podcast? <laughs> delete that from the record. I mean, I think my my answer off the cuff is maybe not very helpful, but I don't think of the unfolding history of of Israel or of us as necessarily indicative of God's 
favor or disfavor, which is which is different than the biblical. Like that's my personal understanding of things. And it's not the biblical understanding of things. So if I tried to inhabit the biblical theology, I think it would take me back to some sense that yeah, it's not it's not great, Bobby. <laughs> that that the the compassion can be overwhelmed. Mm. Or that at some point, I don't know, is there some way to read a like tough love kind of situation into this? I don't know. I don't know what to I don't know what to do with it. Cause you're right that the protection of Israel from this kind of destruction. At, at the very least, that ends. We can see mm-hmm. the destruction is coming directly from the hand of God or not. Mm-hmm. I guess, I, I imagine there are people who try to read it somehow as uh, somehow serving the good, but it's, uh, it doesn't, that doesn't sit easily with me. Mm-hmm. You have an answer? Well, I mean, I think I'm sort of in a similar place to, to, Partly for me, the way that I read that section between five and seven was God thought about punishing and then decided to be compassionate instead of punishing, Mm -hmm. which is different than saying the natural consequences worked themselves out. Yeah. Which for me leaves open the possibility that the natural consequences could yet still work themselves out. Yeah. So one way of reading this is no matter how compassionate God might choose to be, our actions have consequences. Yeah. Not theological ones. like Actual ones. (laughs) We're going to irritate God and God's going to punish us. But actually, if we make alliances, if we, you know, we make dumb political choices, those things are going to play out. Yeah. No matter how, how compassionate God might choose to be towards us. I think that's the best. I mean, it's kind of a depressing answer, but I think that's the best answer I've got is that maybe God is compassionately watching Assyria. Right. Carry and there out is, the I, mean, I don't know. I'm thinking aloud here, so I might really hate what comes out of my face. But it, again, like it, I said earlier that I don't know that we really want to go all the way into the parenting metaphor because in the parenting metaphor, eventually the child becomes relatively independent from the parent and they continue to have maybe some obligation of love towards one another. But, but really as the child becomes a teenager and then an adult, they, they make their own decisions and they are responsible for the consequences of those decisions. Now, I don't know that that's ever the model that the, the biblical text had in mind for the relationship of God Mm -hmm. and Israel. But at least if we're sitting inside the parent metaphor now, there, there is a point, you know, with, with parenting adult children that you actually can't, you can't save them from themselves anymore. Like they, Mm -hmm. they are adults. You you literally cannot do anything. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good reading of this text. It's a, you know, we're, we're stretching past the text here. Yeah. But I think it's a productive, I think it's a productive stretch. Bobby, I have, I have at least one more question for you. And it's about verse nine. This, this line you pointed out for, I am God, not Mm. man, not human. Yeah. That line is also used in numbers 23 to say sort of like, 
I don't change my mind like humans change their minds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah. I'm God. I don't change my mind like you fools change your minds. And here it means like the opposite, sort yeah. of. Like I am God and I have stepped back from, <laughs> I love that. you know, yeah. from my anger. And I don't know. I just, I just wonder how, sit, can you just say something? How does that sit with you? What do you, what do you love about that or not love about it? I mean, I think the thing that I love about it is that the the God of the Hebrew Bible, for the most part, is a God who is engaged in what is happening in the moment and the, kind of explicitly changes God's mind, even in the book of Numbers, mm-hmm. when God wants to destroy Israel after they refuse to go into the land of Canaan and start over with Moses. And Moses says, no, 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 no. Remember, you're a compassionate God. And God says, oh, yeah, that's right. I won't destroy them. And so like, to me, like God is the God of the Hebrew Bible. God of the Bible is a God who's responding in the moment to the relationship. And so I just think that sort of number is like, I don't change my mind is like, you know, okay. Like, (laughs) sure. And it seems to me like most of the time when God changes God's mind, I'm trying to think of a counter example. It is a, it is a decision that is a compassionate decision. That's what I was just thinking as you were saying that, like, maybe the issue is not so much about changing God's mind. It is a a God who leans towards compassion. Yes. And can change course from other really big feelings towards compassion. Yeah. I also think it's really helpful for me as much as I have leaned hard into this parenting metaphor, because it's what I've got. Like Like, that's the whole biblical text, right? It is, it is the story of God and humanity, and it is written in words it, you know, that, that yeah. humans can understand and metaphors we can understand. And so it's it's really easy to, to get a little too concrete about them. But it's a good reminder to me after I've talked about like a million parenting experiences that I've had that it's not exactly the same. You, know? <laughs> you need to remember <laughs> yeah. that like, yeah, yeah. I am not actually God and my child is not actually Israel, you know. Yeah. Yeah, because, because. Yeah, it's true. All right, friend, what would you raise up for us on just these nine verses of parenting poetry? Amy, this to me is one of those places where I just want to linger for a minute in sort of abstract theology. Mm-hmm. I know I, I'm often trying to touch the ground, usually in an economic or political <laughs> way, but I just want to rest in this passage for a minute about the, the God who feels all the feelings and the God who made a commitment to an adopted child and remembers all the wonderful times with that child. And at the end of the day, no matter how frustrated, no matter how angry God might be or how recalcitrant the child might be, at the end of the day, God is moved by compassion. And I I just think that's such an important theological message in a world in which, at least in my tradition, God is so often invoked as like sinners in the hands of an angry God, like you're a spider dangling over the fire and God might drop you at any moment. Like there's this like, I don't know, God is often portrayed in these sort of vicious and vindictive ways. And this is exactly not that. 
This is a God whose compassion overwhelms God's desire for justice. And God is able to say, I give up my right to punish you because I love you too much. I just think if, if we could hold that out there as like, I can't believe I'm about to say maybe Hosea should be our model of what God is like, because Hosea is troubling in all sorts of ways. But this passage Just these nine Hosea, verses, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such a beautiful image of what God is like. So I just wanna I just wanna hang on to that. And you know, the thing that I was saying a little bit earlier is if we take God as a model of what human beings could be, then there is also in this passage that if if God can feel all the feelings and make this kind of choice, there is at least an invitation to you and to me to feel all our feelings yeah. and then to make a choice to be compassionate when we can be compassionate. And I I I just love that sort of that image that version of imitatio dei to me is a, is a really lovely one. Yeah. Um, since God has been gracious to us, can can we be gracious to each other? I have lots of other thoughts about where this text could go, many of which pop that bu- bubble that I just <laughs> like created. <laughs> but that's not as nice. But, but yeah. I just want to linger there. I just want to let that be enough for today. Mm, I love that. What about you? I mean, I think in some ways I'm thinking similarly, but a little bit more grounded in in the second part of what you said, the imitatio dei part. You know, we we had a teacher, David Peterson, who often spoke of the stories in the book of Genesis as, you know, we like to hold up this ideal of what what family looks like. And the stories in Genesis have families that just are in some, like are all kinds of ways and people move apart from each other so they don't kill each other. Like they they have to make decisions about how how they're actually going to function. They are not idyllic. Yeah, no. <laughs> idyllic no. situations. Yeah. And often the right thing in those stories is that people should separate from one each from one another and live separate lives. And and that seems to be affirmed as like this is okay. This is like yeah. a pathway that is viable and important to know is here for us. And I think that's really important. And I love the not count, I wouldn't say this is a counterpoint to that, but this is a different kind of portrayal of a relationship, a parent-child relationship in particular, that is so fraught and painful and is is worth, it seems from the from the perspective of the text, is worth trying to stay in. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, I love what you said about like, yeah, I mean, feel all the feelings, like, that there's no imagining here that like everything's hunky dory now and everything is solved. It's just, it is equally true that this is causing me pain and you are being a big jerk. And that I, I feel so much compassion and love for you. And it's, it's painful to sit between those two things. Like it, I don't feel like this comes to some kind of peaceful resolution where God feels awesome about the situation. Yeah. But I think it offers some space for us as modern folks to think about, you know, look, not every relationship is one that you should keep in your life. That is true. Mm-hmm. And we have a biblical model for that. And this is a model for the relationships that are are hard and painful and complicated, but but we need to endure in for another another day, another two days, another week. I wish God had some mom friends in this 
yeah. section yeah. of text <laughs> because it's hard. It's hard stuff. But I don't know. I think the acknowledgement that this is just this is part of the deal in many relationships is really beautiful and affirming and mm-hmm. real. Mm-hmm. It's really real. Thank you for that, Amy. God and her mom friends. I like that. God needs some mom friends. Bobby, next time we move on to the book of Isaiah, chapter 5 and chapter 11. Is that Does that have part of the hedge story that you just told? It does, yeah. The, for that chapter 5 is the parable of the vineyard. Fantastic. And then chapter 11 is the stump of Jesse. You didn't even know how you were leading us right, right along the way of the yes. narrative lectionary path. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thanks for this conversation, Bobby. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I hope you all have a good week. We'll talk next time. Thanks, Amy. I'll see you then. Okay. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dan O'Sons. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Next week, we'll be reading from Isaiah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Until then, keep on digging.